This is Novels and Naps, Episode 3. Greetings, friends, and welcome back to Novels and Naps. For those of you that are new here, think this podcast is a low-maintenance book club. I read, comment, and ramble, and you just listen. And if the book or my voice are boring, you can fall asleep, and I won't even know. It's a book club and a bedtime story. My plan is to read through selections from classic novels and provide you with some verbal annotations and whatever random commentary comes to mind. All the texts that I'll be reading will be coming from the public domain because student loans, expensive lawsuits, etc. So here's your opportunity to catch up on all those classics you said that you read, but never really did. So to recap, we're still reading Jane Eyre. Well, mostly reading it. I've been doing a little bit of skipping around because as much as I love Bronte's writing... I'm not the Audible app, and this is something that's supposed to be fun for me, so I don't necessarily want to read aloud the boring parts. Before I jump into the novel, I thought that I'd provide a little bit of background about the time period that it's set in and some of the references that Jane is making about her society. I also really want to recommend some of the documentaries that the BBC has put out about Victorian society and culture that are hosted by Dr. Lucy Worsley. I guarantee that you'll appreciate them if Victorian novel is your thing. So I think it's safe to say that though Jane isn't treated particularly well by Mrs. Reed, she does have a stable and secure home. She's fed, clothed, and cared for, for all intents and purposes. Her basic physical needs are met. She also has a crushing fear of poverty that I think is missing from many middle-class children in our current times, and I suspect that this may be due to the increased visibility that it had in Victorian and other exposure and whatnot that she's experienced and that some of the young people growing up now have not. Technically speaking, the novel is set prior to Queen Victoria taking the throne, so it's set in the Georgian era, but it was written by a Victorian author. So it's still a product of the Victorian era, and there are elements of that sensibility and morality within the text, because that's what helped connect readers to it. Um, The Victorian lens, generally speaking, is something that we talk a lot about in literature, because it colors... A lot of the writing during the Victorian time is when we got a lot of novels that started to be published, and so that is the society that was reflected when we look at historical times, even if these novels were set earlier, as Jane Eyre was. Anyway, I just wanted to talk a little bit about workhouses, because that's a huge thing, and Jane mentions them when she's talking about poverty. Workhouses were a form of social welfare that were developed to provide housing and support for individuals that, for whatever reason, were not able to support themselves. I use the term support loosely because essentially individuals were provided with housing in exchange for work, but it was a system in which men, women, and children were separated, families were destroyed, and a hell of a lot of people died due to poor conditions within these environments. Uh, Malnourishment was very common, sickness rampaged through them, and it was not an ideal place to be. So Jane is right to be frightened by this prospect. Many people who entered workhouses never managed to leave them. They were not comfortable or particularly safe places. During this time, poverty was seen as a sign of physical, spiritual, and mental failure, and the conditions of these places really reflected that. There's obviously a lot more to the history of workhouses and the intentions behind them and their lingering social impacts, but I think that it's enough to say that they weren't great. Anyway, let's jump back into the story and see how things are going for Jane in Chapter 5. 
Chapter 5 Five o'clock had hardly struck on the morning of the 19th of January when Bessie brought a candle into my closet and found me already up and nearly dressed. I had risen half an hour before her entrance and had washed my face and put on my clothes by the light of a half-moon just setting, whose rays streamed through the narrow window near my crib. I was to leave Gateshead that day by a coach which passed the lodge gates at 6 a.m. Bessie was the only person yet risen. She had lit a fire in the nursery, where she now proceeded to make my breakfast. Few children can eat when excited with the thoughts of a journey nor could I. Bessie, having pressed me in vain to take a few spoonfuls of the boiled milk and bread she had prepared for me, wrapped up some biscuits in a paper and put them into my bag. Then she helped me on with my police and bonnet, and wrapping herself in a shawl, she and I left the nursery. As we passed Mrs. Reed's bedroom, she said, Will you go in and bid Mrs. Goodbye? No, Bessie. She came to my crib last night when you were gone down to supper and said, I need not disturb her in the morning or my cousins either, and she told me to remember that she had always been my best friend and to speak of her and be grateful to her accordingly. What did you say, miss? Nothing. I covered my face with the bedclothes and turned from her to the wall. That was wrong, Miss Jane. It was quite right, Bessie. Your missus has not been my friend. She has been my foe. Oh, Miss Jane, don't say so. Goodbye to Gateshead, cried I, as we passed through the hall and went out at the front door. The moon was set and it was very dark. Bessie carried a lantern, whose light glanced on wet steps and gravel roads sodden by a recent thaw. Raw and chill was the winter morning. My teeth chattered as I hastened down the drive. There was a light in the porter's lodge. When we reached it, we found the porter's wife just kindling her fire. My trunk, which had been carried down the evening before, stood quartered at the door. It wanted but a few minutes of six, and shortly after that hour had struck, the distant roll of wheels announced the coming coach. I went to the door and watched its lamps approach rapidly through the gloom. Is she going by herself? asked the porter's wife. Yes. And how far is it? Fifty miles. What a long way! I wonder Miss Reed is not afraid to trust her so far alone. The coach drew up. There it was at the gates with its four horses and its top laden with passengers. The garden coachman loudly urged haste. My trunk was hoisted up. I was taken from Bessie's neck, to which I clung with kisses. Be sure and take good care of her, cried she to the guard as he lifted me into the inside. Aye, aye, was the answer. The door was slapped to. A voice exclaimed, All right, and on we drove. Thus was I suffered from Bessie and Gateshead, thus whirled away to unknown and, as I then deemed, remote and mysterious regions. I remember but little of the journey. I only know that the day seems to me of a preternatural length and that we appear to travel over hundreds of miles of road. We passed through several towns, and in one, a very large one, the coach stopped. The horses were taken out, and the passengers alighted to dine. I was carried into an inn where the guard wanted me to have some dinner. But as I had no appetite, he left me in an immense room with a fireplace at each end, a chandelier pendant from the ceiling, and a little red gallery high up against the wall filled with musical instruments. Here I walked about for a long time, feeling very strange and mortally apprehensive of someone coming in and kidnapping me, for I believed in kidnappers, their exploits having frequently figured in Bessie's fireside chronicles. At last the guard returned. Once more I was stowed away in the coach. My protector mounted his own seat, sounded his hollow horn, and away we rattled over the stony street. The afternoon came on wet and somewhat misty, as it waned into dusk. I began to feel that we were getting very far indeed from Gateshead. We ceased to pass through towns. The country changed, great gray hills heaved up around the horizon. As twilight deepened, we descended a valley, dark with wood, and long after night had overclouded the prospect, I heard a wild wind rushing among the trees. Lulled by the sound, I at last dropped asleep. I had not long slumbered when the sudden cessation of motion awake awoke me. The coach door was open, and a person, like a servant, was standing at it. I saw her face and dress by the light of the lamps. "'Is there a little girl called Jane Eyre here?' she asked. I answered yes, and was then lifted out. My trunk was handed down, and the coach instantly drove away. I was stiff with long sitting and bewildered with the noise and motion of the coach. Gathering my faculties, I looked about me. 
Rain, wind, and darkness filled the air. Nevertheless, I dimly discerned a wall before me and a door open in it. Through this door, I passed with my new guide. She shut and locked it behind her. There was now visible a house or houses, for the building spread far, with many windows, and lights burned in some. We went up a broad, pebbly path, splashing wet, and were admitted at a door. Then the servant led me through a passage into a room with a fire, where she left me alone. I stood and warmed my numbed fingers over the blaze. Then I looked around. There was no candle, but the uncertain light from the hearth showed by intervals papered walls, carpet, curtains, shining mahogany furniture. It was a parlor, not so spacious or splendid as the drawing-room at Gateshead, but comfortable enough. I was puzzling to make up the subject of a picture on the wall when the door opened and an individual carrying a light entered. Another followed close behind. The first was a tall lady with dark hair, dark eyes, and a pale and large forehead. Her figure was partly enveloped in a shawl, her countenance was grave, her bearing erect. "'The child is very young to be sent alone,' said she, putting her candle down on the table. She considered me attentively for a minute or two, then further added, "'She had better be put to bed soon. She looks tired. Are you tired?' she asked, placing her hand on my shoulder. "'A little, ma'am. And hungry, too, no doubt. Let her have some supper before she goes to bed, Miss Miller.' Is this the first time you have left your parents to come to school, my little girl? I explained to her that I had no parents. She inquired how long they had been dead, then how old I was, what was my name, whether I could read, write, and sew a little. Then she touched my cheek gently with her forefinger, and sang. She hoped I should be a good child, dismissed me along with Miss Miller. The lady I had left might be about twenty-nine. The one who went with me appeared some years younger. The first impressed me by her voice, look, and air. Miss Miller was more ordinary, ruddy in complexion, though of a careworn countenance, hurried in gait and action, like one who had always a multiplicity of tasks on hand. She looked, indeed, what I afterwards found she really was, an under-teacher. Led by her, I passed from compartment to compartment, from passage to passage, of a large and irregular building, till, emerging from the total and somewhat dreary silence pervading that portion of the house we had traversed, we came upon the hum of many voices, and presently entered a wide, long room, with great deal tables, two at each end, on each of which burnt a pair of candles, and seated all round on benches a congregation of girls of every age, from nine or ten to twenty. Seen by the dim light of the dips, their number to me appeared countless, though not in reality exceeding eighty. They were uniformly dressed in brown-stuffed frocks of quaint fashion, and long holland pinafores. It was the hour of study. They were engaged in conning over their tomorrow's task, task, and the hum I had heard was the combined result of their whispered repetitions. Miss Miller signed to me to sit on a bench near the door, then walked up to the top of the long room. She cried out, Monitors, collect the lesson books and put them away. Four tall girls arose from different tables and, going round, gathered the books and removed them. Miss Miller again gave the word of command, Monitors, fetch the supper trays. The tall girls went out and returned presently, each bearing a tray with portions of something, I knew not what, arranged thereon, and a pitcher of water and mug in the middle of each tray. The portions were handed round. Those who liked took a draught of the water, the mug being common to all. When it came to my turn, I drank, for I was thirsty, but did not touch the food, excitement and fatigue rendering me incapable of eating. I now saw, however, that it was a thin oaten cake shared into fragments. The meal over... Prayers were read by Miss Miller, and the classes filed off, two and two, upstairs. Overpowered by this time with weariness, I scarcely noticed what sort of a place the bedroom was, except that, like the schoolroom, I saw it was very long. Tonight I was to be Miss Miller's bedfellow. She helped me to undress. When laid down, I glanced at the long rows of beds, each of which was quickly filled with two occupants. In ten minutes the single light was extinguished, and amid silence and complete darkness, I fell asleep. The night passed rapidly. 
I was too tired even to dream. I only once awoke to hear the wind rave in furious gusts, and the rain fall in torrents, and to be sensible that Miss Miller had taken her place by my side. When I again unclosed my eyes, a loud bell was ringing. The girls were up and dressing. Day had not yet begun to dawn, and a rush light or two burned in the room. I too rose reluctantly. It was bitter cold, and I dressed as well as I could for shivering, and washed when there was a basin at liberty, which did not occur soon, as there was but one basin to six girls on the stands down the middle of the room. Again the bell rang, all formed in file, two and two, and in that order descended the stairs and entered the cold and dimly lit schoolroom. Here prayers were read by Miss Miller. Afterwards, she called out, Form classes. A great tumult succeeded for some minutes, during which Miss Miller repeatedly exclaimed, Silence and order. When it subsided, I saw them all drawn up in four semicircles before four chairs placed at the four tables. All held books in their hands, and a great book, like a Bible, lay on each table before the vacant seat. A pause of some seconds succeeded, filled up by the low, vague hum of numbers. Miss Miller walked from class to class, hushing this indefinite sound. A distant bell tinkled. Immediately, three ladies entered the room, each walked to a table, and took her seat. Miss Miller assumed the fourth vacant chair, which was that nearest the door, and around which the smallest of the children were assembled. To this inferior class I was called, and placed at the bottom of it. Business now began. The day's collect was repeated. Then, certain texts of scripture were said, and to these succeeded a protracted reading of chapters in the Bible, which lasted an hour. By the time that exercise was terminated, day had finally dawned. The indefatigable bell now sounded for the fourth time. The classes were marshaled and marched into another room to breakfast. How glad I was to behold a prospect of getting something to eat. I was now nearly sick from inanition, having taken so little the day before. The refectory was a great, low-sealed, gloomy room. On two long tables, smoked basins of something hot, which, however, to my dismay, sent forth an odor far from inviting. I saw a universal manifestation of discontent when the fumes of the repast met the nostrils of those destined to swallow it. From the vein of the procession, the tall girls of the first class rose with whispered words. Disgusting! The porridge is burnt again! Silence! ejaculated a voice, not that of Miss Miller, but one of the upper teachers, a little and dark parsonage, smartly dressed but of somewhat morose aspect who installed herself at the top of one table while a more buxom lady presided at the other i look in vain for her i had first seen the night before she was not visible miss miller occupied the foot of the table where i sat and a strange foreign-looking elderly lady the french teacher as i afterwards found took this corresponding seat at the other board a long grace was said and a hymn sung then a servant brought in some tea for the teachers and the meal began Ravenous, and now very faint, I devoured a spoonful or two of my portion without thinking of its taste. But the first edge of hunger blunted, I perceived I had got in hand a nauseous mess. Burnt porridge is almost as bad as rotten potatoes. Famine itself soon sickens over it. The spoons arose slowly. I saw each girl taste her food and try to swallow it, but in most cases the effort was soon relinquished. Breakfast was over, and none had breakfasted. Thanks being returned for what we had not got, and a second hymn chanted. The refectory was evacuated for the schoolroom. I was one of the last to go out, and in passing the tables, I saw one teacher take a basin of the porridge and taste it. She looked at the others. All their countenances expressed displeasure, and one of them, the stout one, whispered, Abominable stuff! How shameful! A quarter of an hour passed before lessons again began, during which the schoolroom was in a glorious tumult. For that space of time, it seemed to be permitted to talk loud and more freely, and they used that privilege. The whole conversation ran on the breakfast, which one and all abused roundly. Poor things! It was the sole consolation they had. 
Miss Miller was now the only teacher in the room. A group of great girls standing about her spoke with serious and sullen gestures. I heard the name of Mr. Brocklehurst pronounced by some lips, at which Miss Miller shook her head disapprovingly, but she made no great effort to check the general wrath. Doubtless, she shared in it. A clock in the schoolroom struck nine. Miss Miller left her circle, and standing in the middle of the room, cried, Silence! To your seats! Discipline prevailed. In five minutes, the confused throng was resolved into order, and comparative silence quelled the babble clamor of tongues. The other teachers now punctually resumed their post, but still, all seemed to wait. Ranged on benches down the sides of the room, the eighty girls sat motionless and erect. A quaint assemblage they appeared, all with plain locks combed from their faces, not a curl visible, in brown dresses made high and surrounded by a narrow tucker about the throat, with little pockets of holland, shaped something like a highlander's purse, tied in front of their frocks, and destined to serve the purpose of a work bag, all too wearing woolen stockings and country-made shoes fastened with brass buckles. About twenty of those clad in this costume were full-grown girls, or rather young women. It suited them ill and gave an air of oddity even to the prettiest. I was still looking at them, and also at intervals examining the teachers, none of whom precisely pleased me, for the stout one was a little coarse, the dark one not a little fierce, the foreigner harsh and grotesque, and Miss Miller, poor thing, looked purple, weather-beaten and overworked. When as my eye wandered from face to face, the whole school rose simultaneously, as if moved by a common spring. What was the matter? I had heard no order given. I was puzzled. Ere I had gathered my wits, the classes were again seated, but as all eyes were now turned to one point, mine followed the general direction and encountered the personage who had received me last night. She stood at the bottom of the long room, on the hearth, for there was a fire at each end. She surveyed the two rows of girls silently and gravely. Miss Miller, approaching, seemed to ask her a question, and having received her answer, went back to her place and said aloud, "'Monitor of the first class, fetch the globes!' While the direction was being executed, the lady consulted moved slowly up the room. I supposed I have a considerable organ of veneration, for I retain yet the sense of admiring awe with which my eyes traced her steps. Seen now, in broad daylight, she looked tall, fair, and shapely. Brown eyes with a ben... benignant? Benignant? It, it looks like benign, but ends in ant, so we're going to consult our dictionary. Uh... Yeah, this is a good sentence. Yeah, benignant, spelled B-E-N-I-G-N-A-N-T. It means kindly and benevolent, which, while well, it starts with benign, but ends with ant, and that kind of confused me. So let's let's start that sentence over. Seen now, in broad daylight, she looked tall, fair, and shapely, brown eyes with a benignant light in their irids, and a fine penciling of long lashes round, relieved the whiteness of her large front. Her large front? I don't know what that is, but let's keep going. On each of her temples her hair, of a very dark brown, was clustered in round curls, according to the fashion of those times, when neither smooth bands nor long ringlets were in vogue. Her dress, also in the mode of the day, was of purple cloth, relieved by a sort of Spanish trimming of black velvet. A gold watch... Watches were not so common then as now, shown at her girdle. Let the reader add to complete the picture refined features. A complexion, if pale, clear, and a stately air and carriage, and he will have, at least as clearly as words can give it, a correct idea of the exterior of Miss Temple. Maria Temple, as I afterwards saw the name written in a prayer book entrusted to me to carry to church. The superintendent of Lowood, for such was this lady, having taken her seat before a pair of globes, placed on one of the tables summoned by the first class round her, and commenced giving a lesson on geography, 
The lower classes were called by the teachers. Repetitions in history, grammar, etc. went on for an hour. Writing and arithmetic succeeded, and music lessons were given by Miss Temple to some of the elder girls. The duration of each lesson was measured by the clock, which at last struck twelve. The superintendent rose. I have a word to address to the pupils, said she. The tumult of cessation from lessons was already breaking forth, but it sank in her voice. She went on. You have this morning a breakfast which you could not eat. You must be hungry. I have ordered that a lunch of bread and cheese shall be served to all. The teachers looked at her with a sort of surprise. It is to be done on my responsibility, she added in an explanatory tone to them, and immediately afterwards left the room. The bread and cheese were presently brought in and distributed to the high delight and refreshment of the whole school. The order was now given to the garden. Each put on a coarse straw bonnet with strings of colored calico and a cloak of gray frieze. I was similarly equipped, and following the stream, I made my way into the open air. The garden was a wide enclosure surrounded with walls so high as to exclude every glimpse of prospect. A covered veranda ran down one side, and broad walks bordered a middle space, divided into the scores of little beds. These beds were assigned as gardens for the pupils to cultivate, and each bed had an owner. When full of flowers, they would doubtless look pretty, but now at the latter end of January, all was wintry blight and brown decay. I shuddered as I stood and looked round me. It was an inclement day for outdoor exercise, not positively rainy, but darkened by a drizzling yellow fog. All underfoot was still soaking wet with the floods of yesterday. The stronger among the girls ran about and engaged in active games, but sundry pale and thin ones herded together for shelter and warmth in the veranda. And amongst these, as the dense mist penetrated to their shivering frames, I heard frequently the sound of a hollow cough. Yes. Yes, listeners. Consumption and tuberculosis have arrived at this dreary school. As yet I had spoken to no one, nor did anybody seem to take notice of me. I stood lonely enough, but to that feeling of isolation I was accustomed. It did not oppress me much. I leant against a pillar of the veranda, drew my gray mantle close about me, and trying to forget the cold which dipped me without, and the unsatisfied hunger which gnawed me within, delivered myself up to the employment of watching and thinking. My reflections were too undefined and fragmentary to merit record. I hardly yet knew where I was. Gateshead and my past life seemed floated away to an immeasurable distance. The present was vague and strange, and the future I could form no conjecture. I looked round the convent-like garden and then up at the house, a large building, half of which seemed gray and old, the other half quite new. The new part, containing the schoolroom and dormitory, was lit by mullioned and latticed windows, which gave it a church-like aspect, a stone tablet over the door bore this inscription, Lowood Institution. This portion was rebuilt, A.D., by Naomi Brocklehurst of Brocklehurst Hall in this county. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father, which is in heaven. Matthew, verse 16. I read these words over and over again. I felt that an explanation belonged to them and was unable to fully penetrate to their import. I was still pondering the significance of institution and endeavoring to make out a connection between the first words and the verse of scripture when the sound of a cough close behind me made me turn my head. I saw a girl sitting on a stone bench near. She was bent over a book on the perusal of which she seemed intent. From where I stood, I could see the title. It was Rasselas, a name that struck me as strange and consequently attractive. In turning a leaf, she happened to look up and I said to her directly, is your book interesting? I had already formed the intention of asking her to lend it to me some day. I like it, she answered, after a pause of a second or two, during which she examined me. What is it about? I continued. 
I hardly know where I found the hardihood thus to open a conversation with a stranger. This step was contrary to my nature and habits, but I think her occupation touched a chord of sympathy somewhere, for I too liked reading, though of a frivolous and childish kind. I could not digest or comprehend the serious or substantial. You may look at it, replied the girl offering me the book. I did so. A brief examination convinced me that the contents were less taking than the title. Rasselas looked dull to my trifling taste. I saw nothing about fairies, nothing about genie, no bright variety seemed spread over the closely printed pages. I returned it to her. She received it quietly, and without saying anything, she was about to relapse into her former studious mood. Again, I ventured to disturb her. Can you tell me what the writing on that stone over the door means? What is Lowood Institution? This house where you are come to live. And why do they call it Institution? Is it in any way different from other schools? It is partly a charity school. You and I, and all the rest of us, are charity children. I suppose you are an orphan. Are not either your father or your mother dead? Both died before I can remember. Well, all the girls here have lost either one or both parents, and this is called an institution for educating orphans. Do we pay no money? Do they keep us for nothing? We pay, or our friends pay, 15 pounds a year for each. Then why do they call us charity children? Because 15 pounds is not enough for board and teaching, and the deficiency is supplied by subscription. Who subscribes? Different benevolent-minded ladies and gentlemen in this neighborhood and in London. Who was Naomi Brocklehurst? The lady who built the new part of this house as that tablet records and whose son overlooks and directs everything here. Why? Because he is a treasurer and manager of the establishment. Oh my gosh. Jane. Jane. I, I don't want to listen to all your questions. Okay. So. Jane learns from her new friend that Miss Temple, the superintendent, does not own the house. And that Mr. Brocklehurst, who is some kind of clergyman and is said to do a great deal of good, is actually in charge. And then she finds out the names of some of the teachers and asks her new friend if she likes any of them and gets an explanation of some of their temperaments and then learns that her friend has been there for two years and that she... And that her mother is dead, but her father is still living. And then all of the children are called to dinner, where they are fed something that smells like rancid fat, which sounds absolutely delicious. And then they immediately go back to the schoolroom, and they learn some more. And then in the afternoon, she sees her friends again. Let's jump to chapter 6, where Jane starts her second day of school. The next day commenced as before, getting up and dressing by rushlight, but this morning we were obliged to dispense with the ceremony of washing. The water in the pitchers was frozen. A change had taken place in the weather the preceding evening, and a keen northeast wind, whistling through the crevices of our bedroom windows all night long, had made us shiver in our beds and turned the contents of the ewers to ice. Before the long hour and a half of prayers and Bible reading was over, I felt ready to perish with cold. Breakfast time came at last, and this morning the porridge was not burnt. The quality was eatable, the quantity small. How small my portion seemed. I wished it had doubled. In the course of the day, I was enrolled a member of the fourth class, and regular tasks and occupations were assigned me. Hitherto, I had only been a spectator of the proceedings at Lowood. I was now to become an actor therein. At first, being little accustomed to learn by heart, the lessons appeared to me both long and difficult. The frequent change from task to task, too, bewildered me. And I was glad when, about three o'clock in the afternoon, Miss Smith put into my hands a border of muslin 
two yards long, together with needle, thimble, etc., and sent me to sit in a quiet corner of the schoolroom, with directions to hem the same. At that hour, most of the others were sewing likewise, but one class still stood round Miss Scatcherd's chair, reading, and as all was quiet, the subject of their lessons could be heard together with the manner in which each girl acquitted herself. And the animadversions, or commendations, of Miss Scatcherd on the performance. Uh, let's look up what animadversions means, because... That doesn't look like a real word. It apparently means formal criticism or censure. That makes sense. So Miss Scatcherd is either criticizing or commending her pupils. It is a word from Latin or French. I'm going to use that at work tomorrow. Turns out Miss Scatcherd is teaching English history. Miss Scatcherd, the English history teacher who uses the big words, well, Jane uses the big words. The English history teacher then roundly abuses one of her pupils, telling her that she's dirty. The pupil's name is Burns, by the way. Telling her that she's dirty, demanding to know why she didn't clean her nails, and then flogs her in front of all the other students. Cool. Jane is a little alarmed by this, as is perfectly reasonable. Student's first name is actually Helen. There's a long exchange between Jane and Helen in which Jane asks Helen a lot of questions. She learns that Helen is from Scotland and that she hopes to someday go back there, but doesn't know for sure. Then she talks to her about Miss Scatcherd, the teacher that flogged her. Then she learns that Mr. Brocklehurst is a monster, but we already knew that. And they talk more about Helen's faults. And we learn more about the school. It's interesting, but I don't feel like reading it. Also, Miss Temple is a beacon of light and hope and wonderfulness. And I am skipping us ahead a little bit because I want to get to a part that is horrifying, but also very interesting. Oh, hey, look, we're at chapter seven now. It's very cold at Lowood. They don't have any boots. Blah, blah, blah. Lowood's a horrible place. Also, they have to walk to church, and the church is called Brocklebridge Church. <laughs> oh, and that is, uh, that's where Mr. Brocklehurst is the pastor, apparently. Okay, we're going to jump to Mr. Brocklehurst visiting the school, because this is where it gets particularly interesting and horrifying, and that's really what I want to read to you. I have not yet alluded to the visits of Mr. Brocklehurst, and indeed that gentleman was from home during the greater part of the first month after my arrival, perhaps prolonging his stay with his friend the Archdeacon. His absence was a relief to me. I need not say that I had my own reasons for dreading his coming, but come he did at last. One afternoon I had then been three weeks at Lowood, as I was sitting with a slate in my hand puzzling over a sum and long division, my eyes raised in abstraction to the window, caught sight of a figure just passing. I recognized almost instinctively that gaunt outline. And when two minutes after all, okay, apparently I can't read this part very well. Uh, I recognized almost instinctively that gaunt outline, semicolon. And when comma, two minutes after all the school, teachers included, rose en masse, it was not necessary for me to look up in order to ascertain whose entrance they thus greeted. A long stride measured the schoolroom, and presently, beside Miss Temple, who herself had risen, stood the same black column which had frowned on me so ominously from the hearth rug of Gateshead. I now glanced sideways at this piece of architecture. Yes, I was right. It was Mr. Brocklehurst, buttoned up in a surtout, surtout, um, a beautiful 
man jacket, and looking longer, narrower, and more rigid than ever. I had my own reasons for being dismayed at this apparition. Too well, I remembered the perfidious hints given by Mrs. Reed about my disposition, etc. The promise pledged by Mr. Brocklehurst to apprise Miss Temple and the teachers of my vicious nature. All along, I had been dreading the fulfillment of this promise. I had been looking out daily for the coming man, whose information respecting my past life and conversation was to brand me as a bad child forever. Now, there he was. He stood at Miss Temple's side. He was speaking low in her ear. I did not doubt he was making disclosures of my villainy, and I watched her eye with painful anxiety, expecting every moment to see its dark orb turn on me, a glance of repugnance and contempt. I listened, too, and as I happened to be seated quite at the top of the room, I caught most of what he said. Its import relieved me from immediate apprehension. I suppose, Miss Temple, the thread I bought at Lowton will do. It struck me that it would be just of the quality for the calico camisas, and I sorted the needles to match. You may tell Miss Smith that I forgot to make a memorandum of the darning needles, but she shall have some papers sent in next week, and she is not, on any account, to give out more than one at a time to each people. If they have more, they are apt to be careless and lose them. And, oh ma'am, I wish the woolen stockings were better looked to. When I was here last, I went into the kitchen garden and examined the clothes drying on the line. There was a quantity of black hose in a very bad state of repair. From the size of the holes in them, I was sure they had not been well mended from time to time. Creepy man looking at young girl's stockings. Um, very nice. Sounds just like something Mr. Brocklehurst would do. And even admit. He paused. Your directions shall be attended to, sir, said Miss Temple. And ma'am, he continued, the lodgers tells me some of the girls have two clean tuckers in the week. It is too much. The rules limit them to one. I think I can explain that circumstance, sir. Agnes and Catherine Johnston were invited to take tea with some friends at Loughton last Thursday and I gave them leave to put on clean tuckers for the occasion. Mr. Brocklehurst nodded. Well, for once it may pass, but please not let the circumstances occur too often. And there is another thing which surprised me. I find, in settling accounts with the housekeeper, that a lunch consisting of bread and cheese has twice been served out to the girls during the past fortnight. How is this? I looked over the regulations, and I find no such meal as lunch mentioned. Who introduced this innovation, and by what authority? "'I must be responsible for the circumstance, sir,' replied Miss Temple. "'The breakfast was so ill-prepared that the pupils could not possibly eat it, "'and I dared not allow them to remain fasting till dinner-time. "'Madam, allow me an instant. "'You are aware that my plan in bringing up these girls is not "'to accustom them to habits of luxury and indulgence, "'but to render them hearty, patient, self-denying. "'Should any little accidental disappointment of the appetite occur, "'such as the spoiling of a meal, "'the ender or the overdressing of a dish, "'the incident ought not to be neutralized by replacing with some... Madam, allow me an instant. You are aware that my plan in bringing up these girls is not to accustom them to habits of luxury and indulgence, but to render them hardy, patient, self-denying. Should any little accidental disappointment of the appetite occur, such as the spoiling of a meal, the under or the overdressing of a dish, the incident ought not to be neutralized by replacing it with something more delicate. By replacing with something more delicate the comfort lost, thus pampering the body and obviating the aim of this institution, it ought to be improved to the spiritual edification of the pupils, by encouraging them to evince fortitude under temporary privation. A brief address on those occasions would not be mistimed, wherein a judicious instructor would take the opportunity of referring to the sufferings of the primitive Christians, to the torments of martyrs, to the exhortations of our blessed Lord himself calling upon his disciples to take up their cross and follow him, to his warnings, blah, 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 don't feed kids bread and cheese, Mr. Proglehurst doesn't like it. And he just keeps going. Just keeps going. Jumping forward a couple paragraphs. Mr. Brocklehurst, 
standing on the hearth with his hands behind his back, majestically surveyed the whole school. Suddenly, his eye gave a blink, as if it had met something that either dazzled or shocked its people. Turning, he said in more rapid accents than he had hitherto used, "'Miss Temple! Miss Temple! What—what what is that girl with curled hair? Red hair, ma'am! Curled! Curled all over!' And extending his cane, he pointed to the awful object, his hand shaking as he did so. "'It is Julia Severn,' replied Miss Temple, very quietly. "'Julia Severn, ma'am, and why has she, or any other, curled hair? Why, in defiance of every precept and principle of this house, does she conform to the world so openly, here in an evangelical charitable establishment, as to wear her hair one mass of curls?' "'Julia's hair curls naturally,' returned Miss Temple, still more quietly. "'Naturally, yes, but we are not to conform to nature. "'I wish these girls to be the children of grace, and why that abundance? "'I've again and again intimated that I desire the hair to be arranged closely, modestly, plainly. "'Miss Temple, that girl's hair must be cut off entirely. "'I will send a barber to-morrow, and I see others who have far too much of the excessence. "'That tall girl, tell her to turn around, tell all the first form to rise up and direct their faces to the wall.' "'Miss Temple passed her handkerchief over her lips.' as if to smooth away the involuntary smile that curled them. She gave the order, however, and when the first class could take in what was required of them, they obeyed. Leaning a little back on my bench, I could see the looks and grimaces with which they commented on this maneuver. It was a pity Mr. Brocklehurst could not see them, too. He would perhaps have felt that whatever he might do with the outside of the cup and platter, the inside was further beyond his interference than he imagined. He scrutinized the reverse of these living metals some five minutes, then pronounced sentence. These words fell like the knell of a doom. All those topknots must be cut off. Miss Temple seemed to remonstrate. Madam, he pursued, I have a master to serve whose kingdom is not of this world. My mission is to mortify in these girls the lusts of the flesh, to teach them to clothe themselves with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with braided hair and costly apparel. And each of the young persons before us has a string of hair twisted into place, which vanity itself must have woven. These, I repeat, must be cut off. Think of the time wasted of... Mr. Brocklehurst was here interrupted. Three other visitors, ladies, now entered the room. They ought to have come a little sooner to have heard his lecture on dress, for they were splendidly attired in velvet, silk, and furs. The two younger of the trio, fine girls of sixteen and seventeen, had grey beaver hats, then in fashion, shaded with ostrich plumes, and from under the brim of this graceful headdress fell a profusion of light tresses, elaborately curled. The elder lady was enveloped in a costly velvet shawl trimmed with ermine, and she wore a false front of French curls. These ladies were deferentially received by Miss Temple as Mrs. and the Mrs. Brocklehurst. Of course they were. Brocklehurst stays there, inspects the building, blah blah blah, skipping that part. Jane is still in the schoolroom and she drops a slate, which is like an old school chalkboard that kids had, and it breaks and she kind of panics because that's scary and Brocklehurst notice. So, let's return to him. A careless girl, said Mr. Brocklehurst, and immediately after, it is the new pupil I perceive, and before I could draw breath, I must not forget I have a word to say respecting her. Then aloud, how loud it seemed to me, let the child who broke her slate come forward. Of my own accord, I could not have stirred. I was paralyzed, but the two great girls who stood on each side of me set me on my legs and pushed me toward the dread judge, and then Miss Temple gently assisted me to his very feet, and I caught her whispered counsel. Don't be afraid, Jane. I saw it was an accident. You shall not be punished. The kind whisper went to my heart like a dagger. Another minute, and she will despise me for a hypocrite, thought I, and an impulse of fury against Reed, Brocklehurst, and company bounded in my pulses at the conviction. I was no Helen Burns. Fetch that stool, said Mr. Brocklehurst, pointing to a very high one from which a monitor had just risen. It was brought. 
Place the child upon it. And I was placed there, by whom I don't know. I was in no condition to note particulars. I was only aware that they had hoisted me up to the height of Mr. Bocklehurst's nose, that he was within a yard of me, and that a spread of shot orange and purple silk pelisses and a cloud of silvery plumage extended and waved below me. Mr. Brocklehurst hemmed. Ladies, said he, turning to his family. Miss Temple, teachers and children, you all see this girl? Of course they did, for I felt their eyes directed like burning glasses against my scorched skin. You see, she is yet young. You observe she possesses the ordinary form of childhood. God has graciously given her the shape that he has given to all of us. No sign... No signal of deformity points her out as a marked character. Who would think that the evil one had already found a servant and agent in her? Yet such, I grieve to say, is the case. A pause, in which I began to study the palsy of my nerves, and to feel that the Rubicon was passed, and that the trial no longer to be shirked, must be firmly sustained. My dear children, pursued the black marble clergyman, with pathos, this is a sad, a melancholy occasion, for it becomes my duty to warn you that this girl who might be one of God's own lambs, is a little castaway, not a member of the true flock, but evidently an interloper and an alien. You must be on your guard against her. You must shun her example. If necessary, avoid her company, exclude her from your sports, and shut her out from your converse. Teachers, you must watch her. Keep your eyes on her movements. Weigh well her words. Scrutinize her actions. Punish her body to save her soul. If indeed such salvation be possible, for... My tongue falters while I tell it. This girl, this child, the native of a Christian land, worse than many a little heathen who says its prayers through Brahma and kneels before Juggernaut, this girl is a liar. And then she just has to sit there on the stool or stand there for ten minutes. And Brocklehurst goes on to tell everyone how he learned this from Mrs. Reed, who he refers to again as her benefactress. And basically just says terrible things and then says that she has to stand on the stool for another half an hour and that no one should speak to her for the rest of the day. And of course, Jane, it, Jane is deeply humiliated and this is awful. And as a teacher, <laughs> I can only imagine the horrible trouble I would get in if I attempted to do anything even remotely similar to that. And so I'm just going to leave it there. We're going to call this good, and I'm going to let you know that for me, when I read this book the first time and the second time, those were kind of the moments of her school life at Lowood that set the tone for me and that are really memorable. That and one other piece that I will definitely read to you, but we're going to jump forward a little bit, and that's just how it's going to be, friends. All right. so. Thank you for listening and sleep well.